CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. You know, today's one of those days when we have a lot of items to discuss, and we really can kind of spin the wheel of fortune and land on any one of them to start with. But before we do start talking about the topics, let's introduce the panel. Jim Galloway is with us. You all know him as the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but one of the most... uh, a well-established, longest-standing political analyst in the state of Georgia, and that continues to be true. How are you, Jim? Old. Just say old. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, well, I'm a lot older than you are, so you can always look at me if you want to gauge um, age in any way. Um, thank you for being here, of course. Stephen Fowler is here, political reporter for GPB news. Uh, Stephen, you had a big take on uh, Herschel Walker over that I saw over the weekend, and we'll get to talking about that. How are you? Doing well, Bill. It's uh, always campaign season and election season, so keeps me busy. Yeah, it's true. It never ends anymore. And uh, two people who know that well are Representative Chuck F. Stration, Republican from Gwinnett County. How are you doing, Chuck? Good morning, Bill. Uh, such an honor to be with you all today. And, Bill, congratulations on your induction into the radio, uh, Georgia Radio Hall of Fame on, on Friday. Uh, well-deserved honor. Oh, well, that's really – thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I, I'll talk about that just a little bit later in the show, but not much. Uh, but thanks for being here, uh, Chuck. And we're delighted to have back with us uh, State Senator Kim Jackson, Stone Mountain Democrat, and an Episcopal priest. And as I think all of you know, while we can't broadcast the video that we see of each other on WebEx for technical reasons, Kim Jackson, uh, an Episcopal priest whose ministry is with the homeless, is in full collar regalia this morning. Kim, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bill. It's great to be here. Hopefully you'll be a little kinder to me since I'm in full regalia today. (laughs) (laughs) I try to treat people of all faiths with kindness, (laughs) Kim. (laughs) So as I said, we could kind of spin the wheel uh, and take on any item first. But because, Jim Galloway, this gives us an opportunity to give a shout out to the Atlanta Braves, who remarkably got through a tough season won the pennant uh, over the weekend, and now start in the World Series tomorrow night. But Jim, Governor Kemp decided to use it as a political opportunity. Let's talk just for a couple minutes about that. Uh, yeah, this is, it, was, it was kind of a grievance moment, uh, I guess you would say. It was, uh, it was, it was, it was an odd thing to... to uh, to kind of put out there immediately after after the the, the Braves, the, you know, we had the, uh, the the final play with with Freddie Freeman at first. Uh, that uh, again, uh, Kemp was blaming uh, Stacey Abrams uh, for for that the move by the All Stars uh, All Star game to, to to move it to to Colorado after the passage of SB two hundred two. Uh, that again, just to remind. Uh, 
uh, our listeners that she she actually said she, she actually advised against uh, a boycott. But I, I will tell you what. Here's the difference. Here's the difference between between then and now, and it's all baseball. All right, the All Star Game is a voluntary activity. You know, you can be elected to to an All Star team and still not go. Uh, which is what uh, Major League Baseball was facing with 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 the Atlanta and the All Star Game back in the spring of 2020. Uh, this is this is mandated. The World Series is mandated. It goes where the teams' homes are, and and it starts yeah. Tuesday in Houston. Yeah, uh, you know, I think Kim. Here's what here was what Brian Kemp tweeted out. While Stacey Abrams and the MLB stole the All Star Game from hardworking Georgians. The Braves earned their trip to the World Series this season and are bringing it home to Georgia. So, Kim, I, I want to try to be as charitable as possible about that, what I think of as kind of a dyspeptic tweet. It strikes me it's the kind of thing that once you've hit the button that sends it, maybe you and the folks around you say, mm, maybe not so it's a good idea to bring politics into this moment of sports triumph. Yeah, I mean, certainly for me, I was just like, can't we please just be happy together? Like, this is huge. Uh, we haven't been to the World Series since the 90s. Um, so it just seemed uh, so unfortunate to uh, not only not to just purely unadulterately celebrate the win, but also then to bring in misinformation. You know, as Jim mentioned, Stacey Abrams never uh, stole the MLB All-Star game from, from Atlanta or from Cobb County. More specifically, um, she was very clear that um, she hoped that the MLB would be here and has also been very clear about calling on businesses to not boycott Georgia. She cares about Georgians and our economy and doesn't want boycotts to happen um, because of the importance of, of supporting local businesses and, and local Georgians. So I just think it's unfortunate. I mean, go Braves. Can't we just say that together and be happy about it? <laughs> you know, Chuck, um, I, 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 what, what I think um, uh, Kim just said, uh, is, and Jim said, is, it's true. Stacey Abrams said, please don't boycott the state. To, just to give, though, a little larger context to why a tweet like that and other comments made by Republicans about how Democrats drove the All-Star game away, I think it's also worth reminding people that it was Democrats who began talking about the election law as Jim Crow 2.0, that it was, um, these are, you know, dramatic efforts to suppress the vote, which, which in some cases may be true. But so in a, in a way, Democrats did give people like uh, Governor Kemp an opening to complain uh, about how Democrats painted the bill for businesses out there, even though it wasn't Stacey Abrams doing it. Well, first of all, congratulations to the Braves. Excitement about the Braves going to the World Series is certainly a bipartisan <laughs> view right now. Um, I think MLB made a very unpopular decision by moving the All-Star game from Atlanta. Uh, Georgians knew this, and uh, polling reflects that. It was very unpopular, and this hasn't been forgotten. And I think that the decision to move the game away and the detrimental impact for business owners in Cobb County, businesses throughout the state of Georgia, um, is something that's still on people's minds. So it's perfectly reasonable for Governor Kemp to call Major League Baseball out on this uh, again, and, um, and particularly with several games of the preeminent event of MLB, the World Series, being played in the state of Georgia. But, but Chuck, 
when you saw that tweet as a, as a fellow Republican, did you kind of hope, ooh, I wish he hadn't decided to mingle politics with this victory by the Braves? So, you know, we want politics to stay out of sports, but MLB, by acting in a cancel culture kind of uh, move to remove the All-Star game, really started this. I mean, they're the ones who got into politics in the first place. And, uh, and the fact that the governor wants to remind uh, Georgians of that very unpopular decision after the fact, I think he's within his right to do that. Stephen? So the governor went on Fox News this morning and said it's ridiculous to inject politics into sports and baseball, thereby <laughs> injecting politics into sports and baseball. And, I mean, if we're going to talk about baseball, here's a little inside baseball. The decision by the Major League Baseball to move the All-Star game to Georgia and the fallout over Georgia's election law has been some of the best thing for both Democrats and Republicans in the state because it gives a very visceral event for both parties to rally their bases around and their ideas and their philosophies in a way that's a little bit more concrete to understand than abstract talk about taxes or voting rights or things like that. So the inside baseball here is that the All-Star Game decision, baseball, and now the World Series coming up again is another opportunity for both parties to really hammer home why they feel their views for Georgia and their views about elections and voting and businesses and things like that are the best for the next decade. So this is really a good thing for both parties if you look at it from the election standpoint. Okay, um, I don't want to dwell on it. It was a it was one uh, a tweet, and uh, we'll see. I think, it, and it's interesting, Stephen. You point out this morning uh, the governor was on Fox. I didn't get a chance to see that, and that he did mix politics and baseball again by condemning, I guess, Democrats for having uh, helped drive away the All-Star game? Is that what he was talking about? Yeah, I mean, it, it's talking about uh, and talking about Major League Baseball and their decision. So, I mean, you, at this point, uh, especially when you think about a certain U.S. Senate race, you can't separate sport from politics. Okay, let's move on. We got a lot more to talk about on the show uh, today. Um, Kim, I want to talk, ask you to start a conversation that there were two pieces in the last couple of days, um, one by Tia Mitchell in the AJC. Uh, she, of course, their Washington reporter, and and another a, a, a front page, a first, a, you know, a homepage story in Politico over the weekend that essentially uh, says that Demo some Democrats, Democratic activists particularly, are very worried that the National Party and President Biden are not doing enough to uh, deal with the election laws that, that Democrats feel are suppressing, going to suppress the vote here in Georgia, and they need more money, they need more participation <coughs> to uh, really be able to win some key races next year. Is that your perception as well? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. We've been really clear as Democrats here across the South, across the 19 states that um, experienced laws passed similar to SB 202, that we need federal intervention, that when it comes to protecting voter rights, we need Congress to step in and to pass the freedom to vote or whatever new iteration we can come up with that we can actually get some bipartisan support on, um, because fundamentally the right to vote is under attack in, in our state. 
So I, I agree 100% with that. Um, and I think what's also true is that we know um, in the 2020 election that uh, the Democratic Party as a whole nationally and the Biden campaign, they were slow to believe in Georgia. Um, money and dollars finally did arrive, um, particularly for the Senate runoff, but it was slow. People didn't believe that we could actually pull it off. And so um, I think what activists are asking for is let's let's not drag our feet on this. Let's go ahead and get money um, coming in. Activists are tired. There's no doubt about it. Um, Stephen began the conversation by saying it's always election season. Um, certainly, I'm feeling that. And so, yes, it's, it is. We're tired. Um, but people have not grown weary in well-doing. I want to be clear about that. Um, while, while we may be tired and really want some um, more money and resources to help flow in, um, people are still deeply, deeply committed. And every day you're getting more activists on the ground who are helping us to um, overcome the new hurdles and obstacles that were placed in our way because of SB 202. Jim, the yeah. political article, the lead of the political article, uh, she, they focus on Elena Reeves, uh, an organizer for Democratic Party. Uh, and the lead says, sitting outside a cafe in Clayton County on a warm September day, Elena Reeves is exhausted, though that may be expected of someone at the front lines of one of the most pitched political battles in America today. And they quote her as saying, it is unfair to assume we cannot organize voter suppression, which is what she says the New Georgia law is. Speaking as an organizer here, sitting at a table full of community organizers, Georgia organizers are Tired. And Jim, that's as much a shot across the president's bow as it is a plea for more financial help, because there are now progressive Democrats who are saying that Biden has not done enough in terms of the federal voting rights bills that uh, keep getting shot down in Congress. Yeah, that's that's exactly where I wanted to go because there's we've got this developing tension now between between grassroots Democrats in Georgia on the ground who who, who understand how hard it is to really to, to turn uh, uh, a state from from one political orientation to another it just it doesn't you know it 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 doesn't just happen and we've got and uh, and they're frustrated at the at democrats in not not just with biden but in congress too uh, for the failure to uh, to uh, to kind of uh, uh, tame the filibuster, because uh, as as the vote uh, as a vote last week uh, indicated, for the third time, uh, Senate Republicans aren't willing to support any federal legislation having to do with uh, with voting. Uh, there's just no support there. Uh, I think it's interesting if you if you read today's uh, jolt in the AJC. The lead item is is uh, is about uh, how uh, John Ossoff, who had kind of it, it just expressed some some reluctance to address the filibuster, says uh, is 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 now saying that maybe we need to take a look at it when it comes to voting issues. Stephen, yeah, it's I mean, voting is one of those things that I think has become more polarized than just about any topic that locks up Washington and. When you look at the way our election systems work, we have 50 different states that do things 50 different ways with 50 different sets of rules and laws and individual decisions that go into it. And there's a lot of heartache over figuring out how to reinsert the federal government into our election infrastructure in a way that doesn't overstep, but that also does maybe step in and correct some state deficiencies or some 
historical injustices that are allowed to continue after the Shelby versus Holder decision, for example. So negotiating that in a time where we're more divided than ever and where the government is as divided as ever is proving to be quite the difficult task. Um, Chuck, more than once over the weekend on the cable shows, I heard uh, people talk about the fact that Republicans on the Hill uh, and maybe around the country, too, are sitting back and uh, watching with glee as the country sees Democrats struggle to uh, try to pass any of the initiatives. The infrastructure uh, bill is still in doubt. So is the big social policy agenda bill, which is being uh, uh, debated between progressive Democrats and more moderate Democrats. And um, essentially the comments are that Republicans see themselves in the long run uh, being the beneficiaries of this kind of struggle, including those progressives who are disenchanted about the fact they don't think Biden has worked hard enough to get a federal voting bill passed. I think uh, presidents historically in their first midterm election face real challenges. The other party typically makes real gains. And President Biden and the Biden administration right now have major issues, not only with uh, Republicans having strong arguments about uh, the concerning policies that the Biden administration has been pushing, both on domestic policy and in uh, in the international arena. But there's real divisions within the Democrat Party right now about the future direction of the party, about what policies should be pushed forward. I mean, we see that really with daily updates about where Democrat senators stand on certain issues. And I think that that, these are all uh, going to prove to be real challenges uh, for President Biden in the midterm elections next year. And I think that uh, that could be a uh, you know Republican leadership in Congress could uh, greatly impact um, uh, where those discussions take place in the future, and Republicans are y- united in that understanding. Uh, yeah, you know, Jim and then Kim. Yeah, if we could take this back to to uh, uh, to, to our, our our previous uh, commenter there, uh, Shelby the the Shelby decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, basically, it, it just dismissed Section 5, which was established a list of states and, and counties where, where, uh, where uh, uh, pre-existed, uh, before, before a, law, a voting law went into effect, any election law, any change in election law, it had to be pre-view, pre, pre-approved by the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, and I, I think we are coming to, to, to realize exactly how 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 special that vote in 1965 was because uh the same arguments are being are are being being launched against uh these these voting rights bills now that were launched then that it was a federal overreach that it's a that it's a an intrusion by the federal government on 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 states rights uh that's what that's what the argument then was uh but the climate was a little bit different and 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 more important, I think you had you had a, a, a centrism in in on both the Democratic side and the most especially the Republican side. Uh, I mean, you had the Northeastern Republicans who were on board with this, and so these 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 uh, federal le- this federal legislation on voting rights was possible. We don't have that right now. Yeah, I just want to jump in and I want to be clear about who's being harmed uh, through the Republicans kind of sitting back and refusing to um, participate in passing voting rights. 
um, fundamentally, our entire country, Republican, Democrat, independent, all of us depend on a democracy functioning well. And a functioning democracy means that everyone has the opportunity who is eligible to be able to vote. So anytime there are hurdles or roadblocks placed in the way between a voter and the ballot box, then we are all being harmed by that. The fact that we haven't been able to pass an infrastructure plan, it's not just hurting Democrats. It hurts us as a country. We are all driving across bumpy roads and roads that are in, 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 in bridges that are in, in desperate need of repair uh, with dams that could bust at any time across this country. Um, so all of this deadlock and this gridlock that's happening, while it may make Republicans feel well because they see infighting happening to Democrats, fundamentally it's hurting all American people. And so we need to step up uh, collectively in a bipartisan manner to pass these types of legislation. It doesn't just hurt Democrats when we are not able to pass a social spending bill that helps to make sure that pre-K is available for every child in this country. That hurts Democrats and Republicans alike. And so um, I really, I, I hope that the Republicans will step up um, and at the very least allow the conversation to happen so that we can move forward and can pass some really important legislation that benefits us all. Well, Kim, thank you for that. And as long as the ball's in your court, um, in, in talking about the pressure that Joe Biden is getting from, from many activists, a lot of progressives out there across the country, um, it does strike me that th- what's going on right now uh, in Washington and really in, in states across the country, it shows us that in many ways, Republicans are much, much better at finding a message that they can communicate to uh, voters than Democrats are. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Biden is, uh, we, we are told by the pollsters that one of the reasons that Biden's approval ratings have dropped is because of the people aren't getting vaccinated. COVID-19 spread like wildfire again over the summer when the Delta variant took hold. That's hurt him. Um, and yet it was Republicans more than Democrats who were fighting the old notion of why you needed to be vaccinated. In the same way, I don't know what activists expect President Biden to do about voting rights when you've got a 50-50 tie in the U.S. Senate where you need uh, uh, 10 more votes to get anything passed. But Democrats don't do as good a job as Republicans at saying, look, here's our message and here's why it's being uh, uh, hurt by the other side. Yeah, sure. I think that Democrats have improvement that we can make. I, mean, I think this is true for, for all of us, that there's improvements that can be made. Um, and I do think that we are also doing some really important work around encouraging um, President Biden um, and our elected officials um, in the Congress to pass important laws. So one of the things that President Biden can do is that he can step up and speak more publicly, which he is starting to do around uh, transforming the filibuster. Uh, I think at this point we're clear that the filibuster is not going to end, um, but there is hope that uh, we can carve out for voting rights in the same way that we carve out for the budget. Um, so that is a that's a pressure point for President Biden that he can use his platform and his pulpit to really push and urge um, Congress to act around changing the way that the filibuster works. Um, and I also, I think that Biden can continue to do the work of encouraging people not just to get vaccinated, um, but also to get their boosters when they need to, uh, and to continue to rally this country around the fact that when all of us get vaccinated, we're all better, um, regardless of our, their political party. Uh, so I, I hope that we will move in that direction of um, certainly, yeah, we can learn a lot from Republicans around messaging, but Republicans can learn a lot from us around actually taking care of American citizens in ways that are really helpful. 
So, Chuck, if you don't, I, what I'd like to do is tie this back to the conversation that we had first today, which is the Democratic, Democratic activists who say the National Party's got to jump in and do more to help us here in Georgia. And here's what I mean by that. Um, we know that despite the fact that Joe Biden uh, won the White House and won uh, Georgia, uh, the fact is that in down-ballot races in Georgia, Republicans perform much better in the state legislature than they were expected to do. They perform much better in the U.S. House than expected. And even though Ossoff and Warnock won their runoff elections here, other Democrats running for Senate didn't, uh, were unable to uh, uh, win in their races. And so my point there is to say in some ways, this is an example of how Democrats have not done the kind of job they need to to get their down-ticket uh, people victories, and it puts them in a tough spot in Congress right now. I, I can't speak for the internal uh, workings or divisions within the, within the Democrat Party, but just as an outside observer, it seems to me there's really two issues. I think, first of all, uh, it is an impossible position to put President Biden in to have to uh, try to cater to all aspects of his party, which includes Bernie Sanders um, and very extreme um, uh, socialists and, uh, on the other hand, say moderate Democrats or fiscally conservative Democrats. So where, where you're left with is a position where um, just to try to get votes in the Congress – uh, you cannot make everyone happy, and uh, and that division is real. The second second point I'd make is I don't view it as so much of a messaging issue as voters get these issues. They understand that um, uh, in spending bills, the money has to come from somewhere. Uh, debates over debt is a very real thing. Um, and a host of these uh, these issues, voters, I think, are just concerned with the policy proposals that are being put out there. And and you see that, particularly in down-ballot races like, like you're describing, fiscal responsibility like we have here in Georgia, uh, voters respond to. And, uh, and that's why down-ballot Republicans here in Georgia did so well. Okay, Jim, let me, let me uh, counter that just for a sec. Um, the social policy uh, measures that the, the Biden administration wants to pass, the Democrats are looking at, are individually pretty popular in all the polling with voters. Here I go back to the communications issue. All we hear about is a $3.5 trillion uh, bill. We don't even hear that that's a 10-year spending uh, amount, not in the next year, say. But we don't hear about the individual aspects of it. And it reminds me of the, the fact that when pollsters asked people if they liked Obamacare, they, they said no uh, in many ways. But when you asked them about uh, whether they liked a, the you know, coverage for their health insurance needs, they, they basically liked it a lot. So make of that what you will, Jim, and then Stephen. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's basically this is one of the downsides of 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 uh, running running political campaigns on policy. Uh, because because there are so many nuts and bolts, and I, I think look, uh, Biden Biden and Democrats have two two problems. Number one is the the broad spectrum of the party. Uh, you've got th th this is not a Democrats are 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 not a homogeneous unit. Uh, they have many many moving parts, and you have to address all of those at once. And not everybody is ever going to is, is going to be happy ever. Uh, on that, and then you're dealing also with just the general rhythm of 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 politics in the United States, as the, and that is as soon as you get the White House, 
uh, you 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 have a an immediate faction against the president. That's why that's why the the upcoming uh, 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 2022 elections are are kind of so so daunting for Democrats. Uh, the the Warnock Ossoff victories on January five were actually just this this terrific anomaly in 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 that pro- process. I think the better judge maybe we, we may be able to see the better better uh, the better uh, better measure on Tuesday when when uh, uh, Glenn Youngkin and uh, Terry McAuliffe face off in 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 Virginia for the governor's race there. Uh, yeah, that will tell yeah, us a lot. Be, Stephen, let me give you a quick word before we have to get to our break. Well, yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, like we discussed that, I think there is a broader spectrum of a coalition that has to be built for Democrats at this point than Republicans who consolidate around uh, issues, viewpoints, politicians a lot easier now. Uh, the The spread between the uh, ends of the party are a lot smaller in some regards when it comes to key policy issues. And so I think what you do see is uh, in Georgia, I think you're seeing you're, you're going to see how much of that shifts in the next year, especially when you talk about Democrats. You know, the Republicans are trying to paint all Democratic candidates as far to the left as Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and trying to paint people like Carolyn Bordeaux, who's a blue dog Democrat, in that same brush. And then on the other side, you're going to see Democrats trying to paint all Republicans as extreme as Marjorie Taylor Greene or the more unpopular parts of President Trump's plan. And so I think it's going to be less a battle about policy. I mean, policy is at the heart of a lot of these discussions and a lot of these battles, but really it's going to be about negative partisanship. And I think that's going to dominate us for a long time. All right, Stephen Fowler gets the last word in this segment. Let's get to our first break and we'll be back with more in just a moment. State Senator Kim Jackson, State Representative Chuck F. Stration, Jim Galloway, and GPB News political reporter Stephen Fowler on today's Political Rewind with me. Uh, Stephen, you published a long takeout on uh, Herschel Walker uh, in the last couple of days. Your lead to your piece is Herschel Walker has been no stranger to the limelight over the years, but his bid to become a U.S. senator so far has been a quieter, closed-door affair. Um, and that's been echoed by, by other political observers as well. The question, of course, Stephen, is what's going on there? How long can Herschel Walker afford to talk to only Fox News and uh, not speak to the broader uh, commu- the media community, but just in, in uh, bigger ways to the, to the voting public in Georgia. It's a really interesting dynamic because you have one of the marquee Senate races. You have just this morning, Herschel Walker was endorsed by another senator, the number two Senate Republican. And we haven't really seen much of Herschel Walker or heard much of Herschel Walker. So he's done just over two dozen interviews with primarily national outlets, uh, found a couple local outlets and things. And he's done one really public event, the Trump rally in Perry. But for the most part, we haven't really seen or heard much of Herschel Walker and what his plans are if he's elected to be Georgia's next U.S. senator. And, you know, I spent most of the summer and most of the last 10 months uh, embedded with Republican Party politics, seeing how things are shifting, 
uh, followed Senate candidate Kelvin King on his 159 county tour, uh, followed different candidates at different events throughout the state. And really, there are a lot of Republicans that support Herschel Walker, like Herschel Walker, like what he could bring to the table, but don't really know what he stands for. So there are a lot of questions on both sides of the aisle about Herschel Walker, the Senate candidate, and what he's going to bring to the table in trying to hold a Senate seat for six years. Um, Jim, now I'm going back. I don't know, Stephen, if this was in your piece or it was in one of the AJC pieces, but I I, I didn't realize until I read the quote that, that some time ago, uh, Stephen, uh, Stephen Fowler, Herschel Walker told Sean Hannity, I think I want the same thing that Democrats want. I think Democrats will be glad uh, to vote for me. He said that on, on Fox News, which I just found, Jim, a fascinating place to say something like that. Right. And, and, and as, as I recall, I don't I don't think I don't think uh, Sean Hannity ca- called him on it. Uh, this is it's it's it's. We're in this era where where outsiders are kind of considered the 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 better candidate. You know, I mean, it's it's on the Democratic side. For instance, you had Lucy McBath. Uh, uh, we had we just uh, we just went through a cycle with Kelly Loeffler, uh, uh, appointed to the U.S. Senate because she was an outsider. We had David Perdue, and now we've got Herschel Walker. And I, I think if there's a a common rhythm in all of this is that these candidates are not used to fielding questions, uh, which can be quite, I don't want to say hostile, but they can be quite aggressive uh, from, from journalists right at the get-go. And you don't, you, 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 have, you do have uh, campaigns that try to create a, a, a space for, for their candidate to kind of get used to everything, uh, everything else, and then develop the, the confidence to talk to, talk to uh, candidates. Uh, I think Herschel Walker is probably the more, most extreme version of this that I've seen, that, uh, that he's got, uh, he's, uh, the, his, his events are sometimes stealth events. Uh, uh, for instance, he had a, he had a, uh, 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 an appearance at a uh, breakfast eatery uh, in Marietta, uh, which was only broadcast after the fact, uh, just because uh, he just to, to ensure that he he had a friendly friendly reception, uh, so so I think it'll be interesting to see if he still has this has this uh, uh, is adopting this tactic in February. I think that'll that'll be an interesting Chuck, measure. I, Chuck, I always ask Republicans on the show whether they believe that Herschel Walker is the prohibitive favorite. To win the nomination uh, in next spring, what what I'd say is his campaign as an outside observer here is building real strong momentum right now, and it it isn't necessary to have big public, well advertised rallies in order to show that. I think that that shows, and first of all, uh, the fact that he is well known throughout the state. As Jim points out, he can adopt the outsider mantra, having never held elected office before. The fact that his fundraising is doing so well and that he is building support with uh, specific uh, well-known uh, GOP um, uh, you know, speakers, I think that ultimately the issue is going to be opposition to the Biden administration and uh, the ability to communicate that to the voters next May. And if you look at this as a long campaign with real opportunity for advertising and getting that message out, 
I, I expect folks advising uh, Herschel Walker say he's right on track for where he needs to be. There's, it is not necessary for him to engage on a host of issues right now when the primary focus opposing Joe Biden's uh, reckless agenda, both in domestic policy and in our place internationally, is the key issue and that Herschel Walker can be a strong voice for Georgia in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, I think that Herschel, I think Herschel Walker is just, he's running an interesting uh, campaign strategy here, um, which I, I just find fascinating because basically he's giving us just a shell of who he is, and then we all get to create him in our own image or whatever mm-hmm. image we want to, right? Like he's just giving us a little shell. You, you literally just have a landing page for his website with three paragraphs, right? Um, so we get to fill in the blanks. And so for more moderate Republicans, they can fill in the blanks of who they believe Herschel Walker to be that fits their their ideas. And for those who are from the Trump uh, camp, they can fill in those blanks and create Herschel Walker in the image of Trump, right? So it's actually quite a clever uh, strategy. I don't know how it's going to work out for him in the long run. Um, what I do know is that at some point, uh, he is um, either going to keep sidestepping these really hard-hitting questions um, and if he does that, then Democrats are going to be able to, to shape the narrative for him. And we will talk about his history of having a history of domestic violence, right? We're going to start, we'll shape the narrative for him if he doesn't step out and shape it for himself. And so I kind of hope he sticks with the strategy he's got, because uh, I think we can win. So, Stephen, I want to just one more comment about this. I'd love to get your, your take on it. it. It strikes me that Herschel Walker, to some extent, is counting on his enormous um, goodwill as a as a great football star here to get him through a Republican primary and the backing of President Trump, which is implicit, which is clear, without having to resort to the kind of right wing pro Trump messaging that every other Republican on the Georgia ballot has to deal with. So I think he sees himself getting through the primary by being cautious about how much he says. And then in the general election, he's positioning himself as potentially he's, you know, a guy who can compete with Democrats in the world of uh, more moderate ideals. Do you, you get a sense of that at all? Well, I, I, I really do like the concept of he, he can be the Herschel Walker that you want him to be. I mean, <laughs> he's not if somebody can't take your words out of context if you never say the words. I mean, it, it is, uh, you know, in, in these campaigns, we've seen, like you mentioned, a rise of outsider candidates that are in opposition to existing structures of power, which is a lot harder to combat because, uh, you know, somebody like Raphael Warnock, although hasn't been there six years, has been there long enough that he's got a record. And you might not feel a whole lot of things about Herschel Walker or his policies, but you might feel something about Raphael Warnock, or you might not like some of those things. So, it is going to be an interesting strategy, but also, you know, every day that there's not a headline tying Herschel Walker to something outrageous that Donald Trump did or tying him to some sort of extreme policy that other more aggressive primary races in Georgia have to deal with is a day that voters don't implicitly see the link of Herschel Walker as being a vessel for what Donald Trump's Herschel Walker wants to be. So it's a really interesting dynamic, but uh, if you're listening to Herschel Walker's campaign, I would still love to shadow you for a day and show voters what it's like on the campaign trail. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Jim, quick comment from you before we get to our break. Yeah, yeah. just to, to build on what Stephen was saying. I, I think this is Herschel Walker's campaign is the campaign that many Republicans wanted to see out of Kelly Loeffler. 
two years ago, but they could uh, not. Yes. They could not because Doug Collins's presence uh, forced her to run to the right. Yeah, that's, I think, a really fascinating observation. Walker is doing just uh, that. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. We'll be back with more in a moment. Last week, uh, President Biden named a second Georgian uh, to an ambassadorship. Of course, Calvin Smyrie has been nominated to be ambassador to the Dominican Republic. We don't know when his confirmation hearings will happen. But last week, he nominated Michelle Taylor, an Atlantan, to serve as the United States ambassador to the U.N. Human Rights Council. She is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. She and her husband, Kenneth, have been long, long-time supporters of Joe Biden throughout his political career. Um, but, Jim, one of the things that makes this a little interesting in a different way, there's two reasons. Number one, President Biden put the United States back into the United Nations Human Rights Council after Trump took us out of it. And, and one of the concerns that American Jews particularly have had about it is that that council they believe has often acted to condemn Israel for human rights abuses far more than other countries with more significant abuses. So the nomination of a prominent Jewish woman to that council, uh, it will be an interesting dynamic as her nomination moves forward, Jim. Yeah, I I think that's one thing that that I, I'm hoping we learned out of uh, in, in, in the, the the Trump experiment in in diplomacy, is that when you exe- exit a room, that you have no no control over the conversation, and and this is this is clearly a, an effort to put somebody with uh, with 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 excellent credentials. Uh, into that, in, back into that room with with a firm voice. I don't know if it will change, you know, the the resolutions, the actions that come out of there, but it will certainly change the debate. Okay, we're going to watch how that unfolds um, and and see. First of all, we're going to wait to see if, if Republicans in the Senate are going to allow many of the uh, Biden nominations to move forward. Uh, Ted Cruz, among others, has tried to block a number of them. So we'll see what happens for both Calvin Smyrie. And now, uh, Michelle Taylor. Um, Stephen Fowler, let, let me turn for a minute to the Atlanta mayor's race. Richard Rose, the new president of the Atlanta NAACP, took a kind of a remarkable step for an organization that's been uh, civil rights-minded for its entire history. They essentially came out with a statement that Rose says was approved by the entire board in which they condemned Kasim Reed's candidacy. Atlanta can and must do better than elect Kasim Reed again, Rose wrote. Thirteen other candidates are running, some with proven leadership ability and political experience, none with a record of administrative corruption. Please educate yourself on their records. Let's choose wisely. Uh, Stephen, I don't, you know, and this, I just wonder how, whether the NAACP is going to reflect on this as having been a good thing to do. Well, certainly, if Kasim Reed does become mayor again, that's going to be a difficult (laughs) bridge to rebuild. But uh, I think it's an interesting, you know, in thinking about the mayor's race now, the city of Atlanta and the state of the world uh, as it is now is much different than four years ago when Kasim Reed left office. The people of Atlanta, the priorities of Atlanta, uh, 
you know, it, it shifted. And I think this strong remark from the Atlanta NAACP shows that even though Atlanta is a city always growing and with people moving in and out and changing, that uh, there are a lot of people that paid attention to Kasim Reed's eight years in office. And we saw the AJC poll that says that there are still 40 percent of voters that are undecided. And so I don't think this letter and this rebuke is necessarily going to be a a uh, game-changing, game-breaking decision that's going to completely turn the tides one way or the other. But it certainly does remind for those people out there that uh, Asim Reed, his four years away from politics, might not be enough to completely erase how people feel about his eight years in office. Kim? Yeah, so I think that Richard Rose's letter, it's a bold move. It's a courageous step. Um, and I think it's very much in line with NAACP's clear commitments uh, to advancing the civil rights of all people, um, and particularly for carrying out, um, I think, looking out for and caring for those who have been most marginalized, which have often been African-American communities. I mean, the things that the scathing uh, nature of his letter, it's all rooted in Kasim's record. I mean, this is the problem that you have when you have eight years of a record is that there's something that we can look back on. And, you know, so for the NAACP to call Kasim Reed out for the lack of affordable housing, um, as somebody who works with people who sleep outside, I think it's a fair critique um, that Kasim Reed brought those things to a screeching halt. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually very proud of the NAACP. Again, I don't know how far this is going to go, um, but I think that it's important for us to hold elected officials to account. It's important to hold them accountable for the actions that they do or do not take on behalf of people um, who are found on the margins. And so, you know, the last thing I'll add to that is, you know, Richard Rose calls Kasim Reed out for not adopting President Obama's uh, 21st century policing plan. And on the campaign trail, I just heard, uh, you know, I just heard a, a town hall with Kasim Reed. He's still continuing uh, to call for essentially the over-policing of Atlanta citizens. I mean, he's not thinking critically about policing reform, despite us having a huge uprising in 2020 that let us know that Atlantans and the entire nation is looking for police reform. Okay, Chuck, I know you're a very smart politician, so the last thing you want to do is be dragged into making <laughs> statements about the mayor's race in Atlanta. But let me ask it a different context of you, since you're up there in Gwinnett County. Um, you, you know that we broadcast this show on like 19 stations around the state of Georgia. Down in Valdosta, I'm not sure how uh, concerned they are about what happens in the Atlanta mayor's race. But you as a suburban Georgian, why should the state be uh, f paying attention to the mayor's race in the city of Atlanta? Well, the direction of our capital city is uh, it can have great impact for the entire state. Public safety is a huge issue right now, not only throughout the metro Atlanta region, but I would say in all parts of Georgia. Folks are aware of the increase in crime, the violent crime that's uh, that's occurring in the city of Atlanta, and they're concerned about the issue of public safety. So I will just say I think uh, – Georgians from all parts of the state are following the mayor's race. They may not have a vote in the election, but they care deeply about what the outcome is. And um, and I think that many of the issues that we're discussing are uh, are being debated in other areas of the state. And there is an interest in ensuring that uh, you can uh, go to Atlanta, that public safety isn't isn't going to be an issue, that uh, we can utilize the um, facilities, the airport and things like that uh, without without problem. And so it, it is a is an issue that matters a lot. 
Um, Jim, uh, the AJC poll came out uh, late last week uh, of the mayor's race, and uh, Felicia Moore and Kasim Reed are way ahead of anybody else in the pack. Um, she leads him by about four percentage points, which is still almost within the margin of error. But but here are the numbers that, in a way, Kim was uh, a, a pre, you know giving us a preface of. Half of Atlanta voters have an unfavorable view of Kasim Reed, according to the poll, slightly higher than it was when the poll was taken in September, 44% back then, and only about a third seem in a positive light. Reed's negatives are highest with white voters, 65%, Republicans, 52%, and just 51% of African-American voters have a positive view of him. He's, that, that portends some trouble for him, although it's increasingly clear we're going to see a runoff between those two. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, we are talking about Kasim Reed. <laughs> as the as as the as as the the principal issue in the, in in the race for 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 mayor of Atlanta, there's there are a couple of things, just a kind of uh, uh, cautionary points that I make about this poll. Uh, the, the the most important is that it was conducted over a two week period, which is fairly long for a poll. It was it was October sixth through October twentieth. Uh, but it does show, yeah, you're right. It does show. It does show uh, that that Reed's uh, negatives are 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 far exceeding his his positives. Uh, I would also I would also say, you know, maybe we need to stop looking at the undecided votes. There comes a time, and and I and I think both Kim and Chuck can 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 agree with me on this. At 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 some point, you you point you 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 look at undecideds and decide they are going to be no shows. And, I think that's and, a really good point, and yeah. and so and so you you go with the people who are informed and have an opinion, and you assume those are the people who are going to show up at the polls. And if that's the case, yeah, you, you're going to have a you're going you're going to have a, a runoff between Felicia Moore and and Kasim Reed more than likely, but you can see the racial undertones. That 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 this runoff is going to have. Uh, I mean, Felicia Moore is not Mary Norwood. Uh, but you also you already have you already have attempts to tie her to 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 Republicans. We're going to watch how it all, all unfolds. Um, I'm just going to take a moment before the show ends because we're coming down to the last minutes um, to to mention something that uh, Chuck Efstration, you were very kind to say something about at the top of the show. Friday, I was really honored that the Georgia Association of Broadcasters inducted me into their Hall of Fame. It's a pretty heady group of people. And, and I just want to tell you one thing about what I said. Um, I said that I'm very well aware that I am an imperfect host of this show. I make factual mistakes. I sometimes start sentences, and they never go in, move into this. The train doesn't land in the station. Um, but the reason this show works and the reason I've been happy to be a part of it is with panelists like we've had today. Uh, I throw out questions. They're the ones who make it everything that it needs to be and are the reason that you listen to the show. And this is the happiest job I've had in broadcasting in over 40 years of working in political journalism. And a lot of it has to do with people like Jim Galloway and the rest of the people who come on Political Rewind day after day. So thank you to the Georgia Association of Broadcasters and GPB for the opportunity to have such a good time with this show. Kim Jackson, Chuck Efstration, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for being here. I'm Bill Nygut, back with another show tomorrow. Tomorrow.